Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, or JOMA, podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and proud JOMA member. And today, I'm really honored and really excited to be talking to another proud JOMA member, Dr. Sarah Becker. Sarah Dingsteg Becker is double board certified in general child and adolescent psychiatry. She attended Brooklyn College and Albert Einstein College of Medicine, where she was selected to the prestigious Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Society. Dr. Becker completed her psychiatric residency at Montefiore Medical Center and child psychiatry fellowship at the Zucker Hillside Hospital at Northwell, where she served as chief fellow. She currently works at Premium Health Center in Brooklyn and is the director of mental health at JOMA while maintaining a small private practice in Queens. She serves on the Physician, Physician Advisory Committee for the Borough Park JCC. If you have anyone you want to be interviewed, you yourself want to be interviewed, you have comments on the interviews, please reach out to us at health, H-E-A-L-T-H, at joma.org. I'm going to attempt to link as many relevant podcasts. Dr. Becker, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. I'm excited too. I think oh, it's the awesome. first time we're ever going to have like a real conversation. I, know. I mean, we talk so much on WhatsApp, but then we actually never have to, we were like, we should talk. So we just have to schedule a podcast for us to be exactly. able to have a conversation. Exactly. That's why this is the first of many. And I have to say, this is such a broad topic, really. Um, we're going to try to focus on the subtopics of anxiety and depression in childhood, because those are like what I call the meat and potatoes or bread and butter for both of us, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the exception of maybe ADHD, which is probably my number one thing that I do, but I know you've spoken about that before, but then after ADHD, it's definitely anxiety, depression. Right. I mean, I think ADHD is more commonly first treated by pediatricians, you know, and then neurologists and not so much child psychiatrists. No, I wouldn't agree with that. You do? Really? I I treat a ton of first-time ADHD. Interesting. but um, I, um, I definitely agree that people should start with their pediatricians. Like, mm-hmm. please, please, pediatricians are wonderfully well-trained individual. My mom is a pediatrician for, mm-hmm. I'm not probably not allowed to say how many years at this point. Um, otherwise I'll get in trouble. Um, yeah, so please start with your pediatrician. You have your child has ADHD, they're gonna do a great job. Um, and, then, and then if need be, you know, come my way. Exactly. I want to start with basic definitions. Let's define what's normal and what's not. We're going to talk just about anxiety and depression in this talk, and then I'm going to reel you back in for more conversations. <laughs> okay, great. Um, there's something that's like grating on my nerves when I hear normal and not normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer to say is what is part of life and what should we be treating? Is that okay? Can mm-hmm. we can we talk about it like that? Okay. Let's start Especially with when you talk about neurodiversity. So then Right. Right. So let's start with anxiety because I think that's much easier to conceptualize as this is something that's part of life. Um, and when I talk to people about 
anxiety, um, who are kind of first coming to the diagnosis, especially when I talk to children, um, but adults also. Um, what I explain is anxiety is, a, is not only it's a normal emotion, it's a very, very important emotion. It is a protective emotion. It is there to keep you safe, right? So it's anxiety is what makes you look both ways before you cross the street. Anxiety is what makes you finish your book report on time. Anxiety is what makes you, you know, double check your kid's car seat to, uh, you know, make sure that you actually installed it properly and the ball is in the right area. You know, I don't know, Dr. Minkin, you're probably not installing too many car seats these days, but you know what I'm talking about. I have about, grandchildren. I know exactly you, what you're talking about. Okay. Okay. <laughs> sorry. 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 Okay. So, you know, right. So that's what I'm saying is, is anxiety. Anxiety is the thing that the, the role of anxiety in our life is to keep us safe, okay? Um, and I think that's intuitive and um, able to understand. When do I treat anxiety? And this is kind of the answer really for all treatment in psychiatry is when it impedes in functioning, right? Mm -hmm. So let's use the car seat example, okay? You're checking, making sure the ball is in the right or the bubble, whatever your model is, is in the right place. That's fine. And then, you know, you buckle your kid and you check and you, you know, that's fine. But if you need to do it again and again, okay, so now we're really talking about maybe more of an OCD type behavior, although I am a person who likes to things, think of everything exists on a continuum, right? So if mm -hmm. you get to the edge of anxiety, okay, we're at OCD, right? So then it becomes, then it's impeding your functioning because now instead of, you know, taking three minutes to get out of the house, you now need to take 10 minutes or 15 minutes to get out of the house, right? If you're, the point of anxiety is to keep us safe, but if your anxiety is causing you to feel paralyzed, right, because I can't make a decision, then that's a problem, right? And that's something we want to help you with. If your anxiety is causing you that, you know, we, we, anxiety helps us be prepared, right? We need to be prepared for tomorrow. And I need to make sure, you know, anxiety is perhaps what makes me um, that I have an alarm clock set so I can wake my kids up on time for school and everybody will get out of the house on time, right? It's a thing of, of being able to be prepared, but if my anxiety is keeping me up for hours and hours at night while I'm ruminating about this stuff, that's getting in the way of functioning, right? So that's really what, um, what I tell people is the first thing you want to ask is, is this emotion getting in the way of functioning? And even if it's not getting in the way of actual behavioral functioning, right? I'm not staying up you know, for hours and hours at time, you know, at time at night, I'm not, you know, taking forever to do things, or I'm not paralyzed and not doing things that I want to do because of an emotion. Is it causing, you know, significant emotional distress, right? Because that also counts. Um, you know, is it, is it making you feel like you're managing to make it through the day, you can feed the kids supper, you can go to work, but you feel like a shell of yourself, right? And so that's where I kind of say is, okay, this is something that needs treatment. Um, and, and, and I say that more than saying, oh yeah, 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 let's go to, let's pull out our DSM-5, you know, criteria, which mm -hmm. anyone who's not familiar with, DSM is the Bible of psychiatry. It's our diagnostic manual, right? It tells us, you know, what the criteria are for certain disorders, you know, whether you meet criteria, you don't meet criteria. Um, but much more important to me is a question of, you know, are you, is this impeding functioning? And is this getting in the way of you living a, a happy, well-adjusted, present life? Okay. Do you Wait. want to talk? Do you want me to go to depression uh, first? I want you to or? not go to depression first because I want you to talk about how this looks in children because we're talking about children. Yeah. 
So let's, you know, let's think of a typical kid with anxiety. Okay. And uh, I guess we're going to get to treatment later, but actually Mm -hmm. the first line of treatment for anxiety, especially in children um, is therapy. Right. Mm-hmm. So if someone comes to me and they've never seen a therapist before, I say, I'll, I'll do a diagnosis for you. I'll kind of help you out, but I'm not starting you on anything unless uh, with exceptions. Right. Um, but, you know, kind of as a general as a general rule, that's that's what you want to do. So you might have anxiety might manifest itself as school avoidance in children. That's probably one of the top reasons anxiety comes to me as a child psychiatrist is children who just can't or won't go to school. Okay, because that is a place that's too anxiety provoking. Anxiety can also present as, as we mentioned before, sleep problems, sleep disturbances. These are the kids who, um, you know, can spend hours and hours in bed and just can't fall asleep. Or these are the kids who fight going to bed and maybe they can't articulate why it is that they don't want to go to sleep. Um, But if you really kind of push them, there's something of like, I'm going to spend hours in bed by myself in the dark. And it's really, really scary to be alone with my thoughts. Um, Like some more articulate children can share that with you. It's going to be children who have, you know, specific fears that, again, cause them to, go, to pe- be paralyzed, cause them to not be able to engage in the world. Um, and sometimes it's a specific fear, like they won't do elevators, they, you know, can't be alone in the dark, you know, they won't do car rides, you know, if it's going to go on the highway and it's the wrong driver, they trust you know, dad to drive, but they don't trust mom to drive. I do have a patient like that, mm. um, you know, so you have that. I think the other thing is, and and this is the type of anxiety that I think in children that I think perhaps gets missed is, you know, we are all familiar with the phrase fight or flight. And I actually like to say fight, flight, or freeze. Okay. What people forget about fight or flight is that the first part of that is fight. Right. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, why is my kid so aggressive? Why is my kid so, uh, you know, irritable? Well, because they're so anxious. And I, I and the, the example I always use is for your child, there is a bear in the room, mm. right? Um, and, you know, sometimes these kids can present as very rigid, right? Like we need things to be exactly this schedule. We need an exact routine. And almost to the point of sometimes it actually can mimic autism, you know, mm-hmm. like really high that. levels of anxiety can mimic autism. And sometimes I do see that where it's like, I don't know, this kid is in my office. He won't talk to me. He's mumbling. He won't make eye contact. He's really married to routine. But then I kind of find out like, what does this child look like, you know, when he's comfortable and he really can warm up. And then we, we treat the anxiety effectively. And then it goes back to looking like a neurotypical child, right? Um, and that's another one we didn't talk about, which is social anxiety. But going back to the just, an, you know, the idea of the fight or flight is that, yeah, these kids can get really, really aggressive because the, in their mind, it's almost like their their top brain shuts off, their animal brain is turned on, and they're fighting for their lives. And this is very age dependent too, right? Like this would look different in a preschooler or young child versus an older kid or teen. Right. But an older kid or teen might not be their their fight mode might not be, you know, punching mom or dad in the face, although sometimes I do have that. Okay. Um, their fight mode might be more of an irritability fight mode or a verbal aggression fight mode. Because they're it's a degree of social anxiety that kind right. of keeps them right. in check. 
But I, but I think the common thread is that what the parent sees may not be what's going on. And then well, it, it can look different. Like you mentioned in young kids, it might look like autism. You also didn't mention ADHD. I see this I, all the time. Yeah, You're gonna get to that? Next one. yeah, that's the next one. So the other thing, and, and this is how I explain to teachers and um and parents, you know, when the kids is having trouble attending to tasks, so paying attention in class or completing work in class, or then remembering the work at home to do the homework or fighting about doing the homework, right? Um, is I said, can you imagine if you were sitting in class and there was a bear sitting in the desk next to you? Are you focusing on what the teacher says or you kind of keep looking at the bear to make sure it's not gonna eat you? Yeah, I think your brain would be on the bear. I don't think your brain's going to be on the teacher, right? And that's kind of the muscle I use all the time. That's the right. example I use all the time is like, see the bear, you know? And that's what it's like for these kids. It's like, yeah, of course they're not paying attention to other things because their anxiety is consuming so much of their mind. And I also tell parents, I said, I mean, again, going back to this idea of anxiety can be normative, right? Um, and there's, you know, quote unquote, normal day-to-day anxiety is like when you're really worried about something, you're really stressed out about something, are, are you paying as much attention, right? You ever been in, in a situation where, you know, you're, you're focused on something and somehow you drove home and you have no idea how you got there, right? Or, you know, you almost walk into the street and almost get hit by a car because your, your brain is somewhere else. So what, that happens to kids too. And then there's kind of the other part of anxiety, which is the fidgetiness, right? The kids who are kind of like, I need to find something to play with. I need to do something. I can't sit still because there's this internal discomfort that also can look like ADHD, right? Or the kid in my, you know, comes to my office and his leg is like bouncing, 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 right? It can also look like ADHD, but it's actually anxiety. Right, but they can have both. Yes, yes, yes. There are a lot of things in psychiatry like that. You can have both. Right. This is this is a personal thing for me because I'll get children sent in and the note will be the, the parent will say the teacher says the child's not paying attention. Yeah, they're fidgety at home too. And there's no history of anxiety. And this is where I think it gets really tricky as a pediatrician because we have such short visits and it's really easy yeah. to just diagnose ADHD, put them on a stimulant, you know, and send them out. And I think for parents listening to this, advocate to look deeper. Well, I mean, the other way I will say it, though, and, and I do say this to parents is kind of like when you're trying a new medicine, I want you to think about like, what is the worst case scenario of trying a stimulant? Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. And, also and it makes up anxiety. Okay. And then what's going to happen when you stop it? Uh, they're back to where they were. Right, exactly. So sometimes, again, you know, kind of thinking about this idea, because I don't want people to listen to this and say again, well, you know, my pediatrician can only see my kid for 15 minutes. Right. So I better make sure that if I'm not sure, and I think my kid has a, you know, my the teachers are saying my kid has ADHD, I better not go to the pediatrician, I better no. go to the psychiatrist, no, no, you know, no, because no, I need I mean. an hour about, I, I, no. I know that's not what you mean, but I want to make sure our listeners are that we're not saying like, oh, no, 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 so then, you know, go for the hour evaluation. I try to explain to people, it's like, I want you to realize the worst case scenario is, is you will try a stimulant medicine, and it will make your kid more anxious. And then you're going to have to say, this doesn't make sense. Now, this is where the parenting well, advocacy part comes mm -hmm. in, which mm -hmm. is saying, you know, and I say this, you know what the definition of insanity is, right? Dr. Insane, it doesn't work over and over. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so don't be insane. You know, <laughs> I'm not talking to you, Dr. Meekin. Right, you know, but, like but, you know but, but you can speed up the process by, by saying, how do you know this is ADHD? There is a simple screen called the scared. 
right? And pediatricians like me who went through a brief extra training, not like you would in-depth training in child psychiatry, um, know that we can screen for anxiety with that free online tool called the SCARED. There's a yeah. free online depression screen, there's a free online anxiety screen, yes. and they don't take very long. And that a pediatrician can do. And you can bill for it. Mm-hmm. You may not get paid, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> oh, okay, fine. Well, that, that's that's that kind of the thing. Oh, well, I thought I, I thought I was, you know, I was helping advocate for something here. Okay. Yeah. Right. But that, that is something that, that I do. And yeah. I, I find all the time, it's tricky, you know, pulling all the threads apart. Right. right. Now I'm ready to talk about depression. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sounds good. Um, so depression, I think is a little bit harder for people to understand is, you know, uh, why is like I understand kind of the function of normal anxiety. And I think people find it harder to understand what's the function of normal sadness. Um, and, you know, the way I explain normal sadness, um, again, I'm falling into this trap of using this word that I don't like, but maybe we'll call it life sadness, day-to-day sadness, Typical. right? Typical mm-hmm. sadness. I don't like that word either. I don't know what word That's I like. Sorry. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to come up with something. Um, get back to me, get back to me. Ne- next podcast, we'll, we'll figure <laughs> out a word that I like. Um, you know, it's a way to, I think, for your body to communicate with you saying, hey, something tough is going on and you need to take care of yourself. Um, and sometimes that's a way for to communicate to an individual what they need to do. And sometimes that's a way to communicate to or, or, or a message that you need to communicate to others that you might have a need, that you might need help right now, that you might need support right now, that something tough is going on in my life. So that's the function of day-to-day sadness, right? And we all experience sadness. So when does it become depression? When it becomes depression is when it's day after day after day after day after day, okay? And it's a feeling that you just can't shake right? It's, you know, one week, two weeks, right? Where it's just this, this down feeling that a person may have. We're going to talk about why in children that may not be hundred percent accurate. And I'll, I'll go back to that in a minute. Um, and it comes along with other symptoms, right? So you don't just dis- diagnose depression because someone is sad for a prolonged period of time. There are other things that we look for. Some of those are what we call neurovegetative symptoms, meaning things that um, kind of, you know, clearly in, are, are very concrete. You know, someone outside can kind of look and see, right? You know, things like sleep problems, things like poor concentration, things like, um, you know, moving slower, talking slower than, you know, than, than normal. Um, and, and, and there are other diagnostic criteria, right? There's, you know, changes in energy level, changes in interest, right? Someone, you know, this person used to love dance and now they just, they have no interest in anything. Or sometimes the way we say it in Hebrew, they have no cheshach, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing that kind of grabs them anymore. Changes in appetite, um, feeling really guilty about things and, and, and I think this is difficult for parents to hear and to accept. And it kind of, you know, makes people just a little bit scared, but you can have thoughts about, I don't want to be alive anymore. I wish I wasn't here. Right. And sometimes, you know, that can, it doesn't necessarily mean it's dangerous. Right. And sometimes that kind of presents differently, especially in children where perhaps there's this fantasy of disappearing. Like I just, I just wish I could disappear and it could come back in two or three years and and everything would be okay. Um, And you have to kind of ask those questions. Now, 
in children, okay, um, and adolescents also, what you perhaps are more likely to see or just as likely to see as a sad down depression is, um, I, I, I'm going to use the word irritable, like mm -hmm. an irritable depression, okay? And so those are teens who, again, instead of presenting as being sad and down, you know, they're snapping all the time. They seem so angry. They seem to have no patience with anybody. Um, instead of being in that kind of what we call psychomotor retarded, meaning moving slower than usual, they may be moving faster than usual. They may be more fidgety than usual because it's this kind of internal sensation of like, I can't be with me. I can't be with my body. Um, wait, and so that's wait. something we often see in teens as compared to adult Younger. depression. I'm wondering how you differentiate that from being a typical teen. I mean, parents will say, my teen is so moody, they're being a typical teen. Okay, so the first question I ask is, how are they with friends? Mm. So if they don't like you, <laughs> but they, they're willing to you know, hang out with their friends, cool, check right. back in with them in five years. Um, you know, uh, That's number one. Number two is I, I really hone in on the interest thing and the motivation part of this, okay? Um, which is like, what are they doing, right? Like, are, are we into anything? Like, do we like, you know, do we still like dance? Do we still like gymnastics? Do we still like, you know, sports or whatever it is. And again, your teenage years, your adolescent years, are intended to be a time of exploration, right? So just because you like gymnastics, you know, when you were 10 doesn't mean you need to like gymnastics when you're 15, right? And it could be that that's something that you're moving away from. But then we want to see you moving towards something like, I don't know, is it music, right? Is it is it art, right? Is it something other form of expression? Um, and, and that's really where I ask parents to kind of hone in on, which is what do they look like with their friends? And what are their interests? What can get them excited? Um, and if those are negative, right, then that's kind of, to me, highly predict, you know, predictive of, hmm, this might be depression. This might be something that I need to look deeper into. Right. One other part that I see is, is complaints, like headaches, stomach aches. So I want you to address that a little bit, because I see a typical situation where the child comes in and they're complaining of headaches or stomach aches, and they get worked up and sent to specialists, and nobody thinks, could this be depression? Or anxiety, right. or both, right? Because they or both. often coexist. Right, right. And, and, and sometimes it is a whiny kid who doesn't want to go to school, right? So I think there's kind of different, you know, parts here. Um, you definitely can have somatic complaints with both depression and anxiety. Um, and I think that um, it's reasonable, right? The thing that we don't want to do is we never want to miss something, right? So it's reasonable to kind of do basic work up a basic look and that's really where you're comes in and trusting your pediatrician and then it's like when you hit i don't want to say you hit rock bottom don't keep mm. digging i don't want to say that but what i kind of say is like when nothing comes up you know that's when i kind of want you to say is like okay so can we think of it like instead of going to the second specialist and the third specialist and the fourth specialist like Maybe we need to think about this like okay. a little bit more deeply. I'm, I'm going to push back. I'm going to push back okay. on that. And the reason I'm going to push back is because okay. I deal a lot with these somatic complaints and also so-called functional disorders, which are real, by the way. They're not in your head fake. When I say functional, yeah, but I, mean, like, I think IBS. we have to take. 
it's a little complicated. Okay. It is yeah. complicated, but the point that I'm making is both for both for depression and functional disorders, I think it's best to not separate the mind and the body and to think of both at the same time. Because what happens is if you start out doing a workup, there's an expectation that we're looking for real physical things and we're not going to look for the other things until we rule out the physical things. Okay, so maybe I would I would rephrase that. Okay, so mm -hmm. I would kind of say two things to that. Number one, I think a lot depends on what language we use as as providers or as doctors, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that you know someone presents with, let's do stomach pain, right? Prolonged stomach pain, right? Etc. Okay, mm -hmm. so I think what we what we the message you know, that we'd like to send is we're going to do a workup to see if there's anything medically that we should be treating. Okay. So it's not like that we're looking for something real. We're looking, we're just, we're looking if there's anything that medically we should be treating. Okay. Now there is a push and there is a move, I think, and it's gaining traction in the, I think even in like the kind of the whole medical world is that whenever you're dealing with pain, okay, is that you need to look at things from what we call a biopsychosocial model mm -hmm. rather than a biomedical model, okay? Exactly. And what that means is to say, and I, the way I explain this is you can have the same very real event happened to two people. And when I say event, I mean a medical event in this case, right? You know, you could have two people who, you know, have a shoulder injury and have the exact same shoulder injury, but their functional abilities are not going to be the same. And the way they perceive that pain is not going to be the same. Um, and so, you know, what I, what I tell people is pain is always real and pain is always, is always subjective, right? Like you kind of mm -hmm. have to hold those two truths, right? right? To this person, that pain is very real and they're not making it up, right? This is real. And it is an end at the same time, it is this person who's experiencing pain in this way. And so that's why we don't just say a biomedical model, um, we say a psychosocial model, right? Because what are the psychological factors that are you know, perpetuating this pain? What are the social factors that are perpetuating this pain? Um, and so I think those are always important questions for um, you know, pediatricians or GI specialists or whatever special it is, is to be incorporating that into this work. The point that I'm trying to make though is, is that you, you know, a kid is kind of presenting with chronic stomach complaints you're not going to right away send them to the psychiatrist. No, of course not. That's 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 the point that I'm making. I think it's we've moved to like that, totally. We agree. Yeah, so. It's back to that DBT two things at the same time. Correct. That, that's yes. what I do. I want to look at my patient's mental health always. I don't want to wait to first rule out medical things. And by the way, we should really talk about how common this is: anxiety and depression. Yeah, because it is recommended, by the way, to be screening kids with those somatic complaints for anxiety and depression because of how common Right. What are the current recommendations in general, like at annual visits to screen the, kids for the depression and anxiety? The current recommendation that just came out, and I think it's for the U.S. Task Prevention, of course, not the AAP, is to start, yeah. I think, might be the AAP, is to start screening for anxiety routinely at age eight. Makes sense, right? So there, there was a... Um, 
I don't want to say famous, because what does famous mean? Famous to who? But there's like a, a well-known or well-touted, you know, JAMA Pediatrics article that came out somewhat after the start of the pandemic. So my guess is probably 2021, maybe 2022, and looked at the changes in anxiety and depression, kind of pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, and they found that rates basically doubled. Right. So if you're expecting rates of anxiety and depression individually to be about 10 to 15 percent of the population, um, you're now looking at 20 to 25 percent of, of children and adolescents who meet criteria for an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder or both. All right. I've heard it's higher for the teenagers. You know, you're, you're doing the larger group of all children and teenagers. But I think once you go to teenagers, it's higher. I mean, it. Once you get above 25%, um, I'm kind of of the opinion of <laughs> what, again, remember you asking like, what's normal, what's not normal, right? right. So, you know, different ages, different stages. I, I just, I, I, I recommend that, you know, we kind of be careful when we say, you know, 50% of people, you know, be criteria for something, right. you know, so I just, I, I do, I do recommend some, you know, some sort of question because I, I, I don't right. want everyone to say, you know, we don't want to over pathologize things. And right. like you said, like normal teenagers, we don't want to pathologize adolescents. We don't want to pathologize an adolescence that was impacted by a major, major crisis. Right. Um, and I know, I mean, I don't know if we're, we're getting there today based on the speed at which we're moving. But, um, you know, I think one of the things we wanted to talk about was like social emotional learning curriculums in schools. Right. Right. And to me, you know, rather than say, hey, you know, let's treat all these kids, because let's be real, there aren't enough psychiatrists, there aren't enough therapists, you can treat all these kids. Right. right? And, should you? Is, and should you. And should you. Exactly. So you can't. And like, should you do that anyway? And so that's where kind of the the role of what we call SEL curriculums or social emotional learning curriculums come in school, which I think a lot, a lot more schools are kind of recognizing that it's not just their job to, you know, teach math and science and Chumash and Navi, you know, whatever that is. Um, it's also their job to teach social skills. It's also their job to, you know, focus on emotional health and emotional right. wellness. Um, and so I think, you know, what we, I would turn that a universal precaution, right? Because it's a curriculum that you're putting into a school that's getting all kids, right? Not kids identified as a problem, right? All kids is probably the, the way to go. Um, that's fantastic. And, and, and that's also focusing on mental wellness instead of mental illness. Right, right, we right. We all because... have mental health, <laughs> every one of us. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I mean, again, it's the idea of like, think about, you know, the fact that, they started putting nutrition into schools, right? They started to put, you know, other wellness classes into schools. So the logical follow through is you put mental wellness, mental health into schools, right? Um, and you're teaching kids how, skills. How do you be resilient in the world that we live in? That is fantastic. I'm going to have to link a lot of podcasts to this episode because I did talk about resilience with a number of therapists. Amazing. So I have to put that in there. Where should a parent start when they have a concern? Your pediatrician, your pediatrician, your pediatrician. Should I say it again? Say it again. Or, or it, your pediatrician. <laughs> Please go to your pediatrician, right? You know, presumably this is a person who knows you and knows your family and knows your kid and is sensitive to changes over time. 
And they are your first stop to direct you, you know, where do I go next? And sometimes it's, well, do I start with a psychiatrist? Do I start with a therapist? There are also many, you know, and, 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 and there are many wonderful organizations out there that can kind of help people direct people to, you know, to get the help that they need. Um, but start with your pediatrician. I love it. And so what you, you mentioned very briefly before first line, because, you know, we're here, I really want to talk about medication for at least a few, a few minutes, <laughs> but um, that's not first line. No. For the most well, part, so. for the most part, yes. Um, and it depends on severity. Um, it also depends on like practicality <laughs> and, and preference, right? Um, but first line is we, we want kids in therapy, right? Especially for anxiety. Anxiety is a, is, a, is a disorder that we know responds tremendously well to therapy, right? We know that, you know, and, and when I say therapy, I'm really talking about CBT, right? Mm -hmm. I'm really talking about that modality where you're helping kids challenge their cognitions, you know, challenge that black and white thinking that perhaps they have developed over time, challenge what they consider to be dangerous, challenge assumptions that they're making about the way that other people are looking at them, and then encourage them to change their behavior, right? Because you, you've had a CBT therapist on, explain the mm -hmm. CBT triangle, but, you know, kind of the idea of, you know, there's, there's a triangle, right? There's your cognitions, your thoughts, your behaviors, your actions, and your emotions are all linked together, right? And so if we can affect any part of the triangle, it will automatically affect the other two. And that's the cornerstone of CBT. Um, so, you know, definitely when it comes to anxiety, that's what we're thinking. Um, if we're talking about mild to moderate depression, we're also thinking of, you know, start with CBT um, for children. Um, and then again, the question is, you know, where does medicine come in? Well, if you have some kid who is severely depressed, right? Or you have a kid who's so anxious that they just can't engage in therapy, or they're so depressed that they can't engage in therapy, or this has been going on for a long time for whatever reason until we're coming to treatment. And it's just like, we really should be throwing everything at this child. We should not be doing things in a stepwise approach. Or it's just practical, right? The parents can't, like it, there's a lot going on and they are just not gonna get this kid to weekly therapy. That is just not happening, right? Um, it, we have to be realistic, right? And, and I tell the parents all the time, I, I'm a realist, right? I'm not an idealist, I'm a realist. I live in the world, I'm a mom. I know what it looks like, right? Like we gotta be realistic. We gotta be with our patients where they're at, um, you know, or, or the child says, I'm not doing this. I'm not talking to someone, right? Like, I don't wanna talk to someone. I don't wanna talk, you know, fine, no problem. Okay, so why don't we start with this, you know, start with the medicine and then we could, we could go from there. Do you do therapy yourself? I do do very little therapy. Um, and this actually, this is it, it, APA. So the American Psychiatric Association laments this probably at least once every few months in their news bulletins, which is psychiatrists get so much training in therapy. So I, I'll just by way of example, um, in my third year of residency, I had four and a half hours weekly of super of of therapy supervision about you know different cases I doing so when I say supervision that means that I would see patients and then I would have either a one on one or one on three you know small group where we would kind of break down what would I what was I doing what was working what was not working and how we do it and I did that in different modalities I had psychodynamic supervision I had CBT supervision I had family supervision um, and um, 
the reality is, is that at least my experience is, is for most psychiatrists, we kind of have a few therapy patients because we like it, right? You know, we enjoy it. Um, but just on a practical level, um, most of our practice ends up being medication management. And that's, that's what I found for, unless maybe you go to the city where you kind of have these very, very high-end psychiatrists who are maybe perhaps even more psychodynamically oriented and they're kind of, you know, they'll do everything at a perhaps a higher price point. Um, <laughs> well, that, that's the key here, right? Right. And the truth of the matter is, is, is you're right. Is because even let's say the therapy, and, and I know this, and I'll be honest with people, is that if you come to me for therapy, you are paying more than if you would go to a social worker for therapy. Okay, you could do the math, you could figure it out. Perhaps it's not because now you're not also doing like a, a monthly med management visit. So, you know, maybe it's not really that much more, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's a thought process, right? So I think, I think that that probably the cost, right? So in private practice, that's kind of the, the cost of, you know, psychiatrists saying, look, I'm going to charge more than the social worker down the street. Um, you know, I, I'm going to even charge more probably than the psychologist down the street, you know, for, for a session. Um, and then I think in, you know, in insurance-based settings, you know, insurance reimbursement is, is not geared towards encouraging psychiatrists to do therapy. Insurance reimbursement is very much geared towards, um, uh, rewarding, you know, more medication management visits rather than, you know, rewarding, you know, psychotherapy visits. Right. There's a whole separate issue of there's not as much child psychiatrist A and B, they rarely take insurance. Correct. So, so there are, there, there is a huge access issue and, and I wish I had a good answer for it, but I don't. Yeah. I mean, even in New York, right. Which is, um, I mean, like if you go to New Mexico, I, I have a friend who after residency, I, I could be making this up, but I'm pretty sure I'm correct. Um, went back to New Mexico and like, she's like the only child psychiatrist in the state. You know, I, I think so. I think I'm not mixing up the state. Um, but the point I'm like take. a class, right. I'm a classic New Yorker where like there's New York on the East coast <laughs> and there's California on the West coast and, and, Israel. Like a lot of, and Israel and there's a lot of stuff in between. So I apologize if you're from New Mexico and you're looking, right. and you're like, no, we have 20 child psychiatrists. So I apologize. It's probably one of those other States there, but I'm pretty but, sure but it is. But the, point is taken. but the point is well taken. Right. But even in, in, you know, New York, right. Which is kind of relatively well saturated with child psychiatrists. I mean, saturated is the wrong word because it's not saturated. Um, uh, yeah, there's an access issue. So it's kind of like, you know, Calva Homer, all the more so, you know, when you leave, when you leave New York. Um, and then there's the access issue, of course. So there are places that are trying to work that, you know, work on this. So we didn't do my bio, but I guess you put that in somewhere else. No, I'm going to put your bio in later. You don't have to listen yeah. to it. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's great. I don't like listening to people talk about me anyway. Um, so, you know, so one of the things you're going to say is I work for Premium Health, which is an FQHE, a federally qualified healthcare center based in Bar Park. And um, I really like what I do there um, because, I mean, if I may say so myself in all humility, I think all of us psychiatrists, they're pretty, pretty darn good care, right, um, for people on insurance, right? And right. so those are people who are on Medicaid, and those are people who have Child Health Plus, because this is a federally qualified healthcare center. The people who are still getting squeezed are the, are the, the middle, what I call the middle class, right? The people who have commercial insurance, um, don't have extra funding to pay for uh, uh, 
a, you know, kind of a private psychiatrist, but are not, quote unquote, you know, low, low enough socioeconomic status or have the right insurance to be able to go to, you know, a federally qualified healthcare center. Um, and I, and I feel bad for them because it's really, really hard. It's a really, really tough position to be in. Um, now, part of what my job is at Premium Health, um, which is not only am I based in Borough Park in, in a clinic setting there, um, actually the, where you're seeing me in my background here, is I'm also based in a yeshiva. Um, and this is a school-based health clinic. And they're, and they're trying to do the model of school-based health, which already exists, Northwell Partners, which uh, with a number of public schools, Montefiore in the Bronx, pub, you know, partners with a number of, of uh, public schools, there are many academic, academic centers that do that and offer school-based health. Um, and this, this is actually the first time this is being taken, not only out of a public, uh, not only out of into yeshiva, um, but also actually the first time this has ever been done out of a public school. So this is done this first year and, and I actually can see everybody here. So I don't have to, um, you know, give priority, let's say to the children who have Medicaid and, and Child Health Plus, I can see everybody here. Um, and so, you know, that I guess the ideal would be is can we get to a place where school-based um, mental health care is the norm? And just, you know, for people who are kind of listening to this and being like, well, do I want the school to know about what's happening with my kid and privacy? And, and no, right? Like this is kind of a regular um, clinic rules here where HIPAA applies, where confidentiality applies, where privacy rules apply, um, but it is doing a tremendous amount in terms of increasing access, both because of time, right? So it's kind of like, you know, the joke of, you know, you ask a robber, why, why, why are you robbing the banks? Because that's where the money is, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, why, why would you practice in a school? Because that's where the children are, right? right? This is where the kids are, you know? So you're, a, like a very, you know, physical, practical access issue, and then a monetary or financial, you know, access issue. So this is obviously in early stages. Um, and, you know, it's, this is not going to scale up quickly, but it will scale up, you know, we're, we're talking about over decades, right. um, you know, I think it's happen. fantastic because what I was going to ask you is about the collaborative model. And one issue I have is trying to coordinate the school, like my patients, mental health you know, providers and what I do and the family. And it's so hard. I mean, people are worried about confidentiality. It's like ironclad, you can't get through. There's a wall, right? It's not just HIPAA. It's like a whole other level of confidentiality. So I have the opposite problem. I can find out if my patient has, you know, a gastrointestinal problem, an endocrine problem, whatever, but I cannot without multiple levels of consent, find out about a mental health issue. Right. I mean, it is, it is frustrating. Um, it, it should just be a release of information that's signed on both sides, meaning the, the patient signs a release of information and hands it to me as a psychiatrist, which says, I give permission for you to share information with Dr. Minkin, and then writes, signs a release of information to you, Dr. Minkin, and says, I give you permission to, you know, talk to my psychiatrist, Dr. Becker, um, you know, but, but you're right, right? It's, it, the idea was these laws and this extra level of confidentiality was put into place to protect patients, right, and protect their privacy, um, but there's a cost, like everything in life, you know, there's a cost of that protection, and the cost of that protection is communication and, uh, and working together in concert. 
Right, but it's much easier when you have a multidisciplinary center like your Federal Health Qualified Center, right? We have everybody working together. It's amazing. Or the school, when you connect the school to the mental health. And this is these are models that I would like to see replicated because let me tell you, yeah. that's not what I'm dealing with. And it's right. it's it feels impossible. Right. So I just I want to make it I want to make it clear to people is that again, the, the models that we're talking about are are relatively young. They're kind of in their mm-hmm. infancy. And we're talking about this. You know, if you're listening to this and, and you have a child now, this perhaps is not applicable to your child because we're talking about this kind of spreading over decades, you know, to kind of actually become wide the, the model for delivery of care. I mean, if you can get into one now, that's amazing. Um, but just kind of explaining that this is that this will happen over time. Right. So what I say in my podcast is when you don't have this, you have to build your own team. Yeah. And as a parent, as a pediatrician, you're there for advocacy. You're there to connect. And connection and connection. Right. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like the, the example of like the spokes on the wheel. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that you function, you as the parent function as the center and you're the one who functions as communicating with everybody and take notes, write things down. You know, your psychiatrist says this is what the teacher said. And, you know, um, it does require you to be a little bit of a nuisance. Okay. It does require for you to, to really be calling the teachers and calling the schools and saying, you know, we, we, again, we're falling back into ADHD, but we increased my child's stimulant, you know, uh, what are you seeing? What are you noticing in the classroom, right? Because like, especially ADHD medicine, you know, oftentimes the parents never see the child when the stimulant is in effect um, because they leave in the morning. And by the time they come home, it's out of their system. They often don't give it to them on weekends. So you just have no idea what's going on. Right. Um, and so that's why communication and for lack of a better word, being a nudge is really important um, in the job of a parent. I mean, within within reason, right? Because if you nudge, you know, everything's a U curve, like an inverted right. U curve, right? If you nudge too much, then people just ignore you. So that's not that's not going to work. Um, but you got to find a happy medium where you're getting the information that you need to get. Right, and sign those consent forms. Yes, please, but... please, please sign them. Give them back. I'll tell you the biggest question I always get when people start medicine. It's actually. It, it's probably more than stigma based, but of course it, it's more than a direct stigma question, but it's, mm-hmm. it's based in stigma, which is, well, if I start this medicine, can my child get off of it? Right. right. That is the number one question mm-hmm. that I get basically when starting anyone. And I play dumb. I said, I'm, I'm not, I'm sorry. I, I don't understand the question. Um, like, I mean, you could stop this medicine at any time, you know, and I, I and obviously I'm, I, I'm pulling them in, right? Like this is kind right. of, see now, now all my, now everybody who comes to me is going to know all my tricks. Secrets. So I guess all my <laughs> secrets, um, but then I won't have to do this because you all listen to this. So we don't need to have this conversation. We could do it right now. Um, and they'll say, no, no, no. But are they going to need it later? And I, and I'll say to them is whether, you know, your child needs to be on an SSRI, which is type of anti-anxiety or anti-depression medicine that we did not have time to talk about. Um, you know, at age 20 has absolutely nothing to do with whether I put them on at age 15. If anything, you know, in the back of my head, I was saying, yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that the fact that I put it on, put them on at age 12 and age 15 makes it less likely that they're going to need it at age 20. I, I don't have evidence for that. So I can't, I won't say something that I don't have evidence, but, you know, it's, it's the expression we use, you know, in uh, in Hebrew, alpi svara, or just according to logic, right? Logically, I, I would kind of think of that, but I don't have evidence. So I won't say that. But I will say to them is, um, 
what we do now in terms of like whether your child needs, you know, we put your child on medicine now is not the determining factor of whether they're going to need medicine when they're 20, right? I, I hope we, you know, we're going to give them medicine, we're going to do therapy, and hopefully their anxiety will get better. And if it doesn't, that's okay too, right? So they'll be on medicine. But right now, can we talk about right now? <laughs> right now, your child is, is suffering. So let's focus on, on fixing the problem now and help your child that they shouldn't suffer. And when we get to age 20, so we'll figure it out. You can stop medicine anytime. And, and okay, I try I'm to make gonna, that clear. Yeah, I'm going to throw out something that you probably hear a lot too, but what about the long-term side effects? What about the long-term side effects of anxiety? Well, right. No, that's that, that when people right, say no, that, that, that's, that's, what, right. Right. that's, what, I, that's what I say. No, no, but that's what I'll say to people. Right. I'll say, it's, what about the long-term side effects of anxiety? What, what about the long-term side effects of depression? Right? Like whenever you're comparing something, it's what am I comparing this to? Right. Okay. What am I comparing this to? And non-intervention is not benign either. I'm going to say that again. Non-intervention not doing something is not risk-free. You know, I, I even had a conversation yesterday with a parent of a child that I had previously treated. Um, and then, you know, for actually insurance reason, they treated, they, they switched to another provider. And I had recommended um, that the, again, it doesn't matter the details that the child starts certain medicine. And, um, and the parents were, were, were afraid, again, and I respect that. I respect the idea that as parents, we want to protect our children and we are afraid of doing anything that harms children. And I know you have a lot of talks, Dr. Minkin, on different type of cognitive biases or traps that we fall yeah. into. And yeah. you know, there, there is a cognitive trap where you know, in our heads, you know, if something bad happens because we did something, that's worse than if something bad happens because we didn't do something. And I get that. Um, so you could link that talk as well. Your mission bias. <laughs> right. So you could link that talk as well to this oh, podcast. Um, or just add add the list of talks we want to link. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. But, you know, getting back to this story, right? Um, and so they Doing nothing is doing something. Right. And so they didn't. And now we're a year later and the child is significantly worse. And they want to go do what I had recommended in the first place. And in the gentlest way possible, I had to say, you should try this, but it is possible that that ship has sailed. So I want to talk about when we do use medication. Um, I want to start with, you mentioned earlier that the exception to the rule of therapy first, there is a minority that you would actually start medication on before therapy. What is that situation? So there are several. The first one would obviously be by severity, right? Mm -hmm. If I have someone coming into my office who is profoundly depressed, okay, or is profoundly anxious, um, and they need to get out of this now, um, then we'll start medication first, right? Now, that's with the caveat of knowing that most of the medicines we use, so that's SSRIs, which I guess we'll talk about soon as well, um, take about four to six weeks to work, 
But what I don't want to do is wait to start therapy, give it six weeks, see that it's not going anywhere enough, and then do another six weeks. So we're talking about three months later, you know, before we're before the person is going to start feeling better. The other thing is also is realizes that let's say someone is severely anxious, not functioning, not sleeping, we can do things, you know, from a medication perspective to decrease that anxiety in the short term. Right. Not only that, but if somebody is super anxious or super depressed, they're not a good candidate for therapy, right? Because. Correct. Correct. It can be hard to get, you know, to get started if you're in that headspace. I do encourage those people to get right on it anyway, because look, they got to find a therapist. They got to do an intake with a therapist, right? Things take time and they got to get, you know, comfortable and start working. Um, and so even if someone does come into me and, you know, yes, they're profoundly depressed, they're profoundly anxious, um, I would recommend that they start there, you know, or start working on therapy right away and getting into a therapist right away. So that's the first case, you know, where I would do um, medication before therapy. There's also, listen, we take into perspective patient preference, right? So if someone tells me, you know, I work 50, 60 hours a week, or I work 30 hours a week, but I'm also a busy mother, or I'm a kid with a million extracurriculars, and I am just not down to doing therapy for an hour a week, like, this is just not fitting into my life. So I would say, okay, I respect that. I hear that. I hear where you're coming from. Let's try medicine. A lot of times I will kind of give them in those cases, you know, some uh, skills or exercises that I want them to do on their own. And I say, look, check back in with me in a month or so. And then we'll reevaluate your decision about, I don't have time for therapy. You know, you're not stating it um, clearly, so I want to make it a little bit more clear that it's not medication or therapy. It's ideally once you're starting medication to also have therapy, correct? Ideally. In most cases, I would like both. There are definitely patients in my practice who are medication only for whatever right. reason. Um, but I would say the majority of cases... Um, the ideal would be to do both. But I recognize that that is difficult, right. right? There are not enough therapists. Therapy can be expensive. I mean, psychiatry is also expensive if you go to the private practice route, like let's call a spade a spade. But, you know, it's not always in the cards for people. Um, and so we work with the reality. Right. I definitely have patients who they tell me quite clearly, I do not want to go to therapy. I want to be on a medication. I want to feel better, but I do not want to go to therapy. And I think we need to respect that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of it is quite frequently that same teenager's parents are like, no, I don't want my child on medication. I want to try therapy first. And then we get stuck. So what I try to do is bring people into the office and make people talk to each other. One of the things I most frequently do when I'm meeting with a parent and a child is I will stop the conversation, I will pause, and I will say, please stop talking to me, please address your child, or please address your mother. 
right? Because, you know, they're kind of, they're just, they, they can't meet each other, right? And so then they're just talking at each other right. by just talking to me. And I say, no, 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 we, we got to do it. I, in general, um, try to make parents understand that, especially with teenagers, it's really hard to force them to do things that they don't want. And you're going to waste a lot of energy on trying to force kids to do things that they don't want when, yeah, sure, in an ideal world, maybe what you as a parent with your life experience want is better. Um, but the other thing is not bad, right? And let's do that first. Let's show the teen that we're listening to their mm -hmm. preference. Um, and then we'll check in. That's my biggest thing. I, actually, my husband was laughing and making fun of me last night about something. He's like, I know what you'll say is, you know what? That sounds like a good idea. Come back to me in eight weeks and let me know how it's working. But it's true. You know, I mean, he was teasing me, but it's true. I do say that a lot because look, for me, it's a win-win situation. Either in eight weeks, what the patient shows is working. Great. Isn't that wonderful? Don't we want people to get better? Or it's not working. And then we have to re-examine the conversation and say, well, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and right. expecting different results. So maybe we should try something different. Right. Right. I do the same thing. I, I, I use a lot of tincture of time. Yes. Oh, I love that expression. Yeah. So Back to when we don't have time, okay? You, you know, you talked about a scenario of someone who is very anxious, very depressed to the point of needing medication really right now. And we talked a lot earlier about access issues. And so this is something that um, clinicians like me, pediatricians, internal medicine doctors, et cetera, um, are under pressure to prescribe ourselves. And so I wanna talk about that for a few minutes because even if I were to refer to you, there might be a wait list, right? Yep. Especially for so, someone who takes insurance or, you know. Right. So to me, there's no reason um, not to start an SSRI in a uh, primary care doc's office. Actually, most SSRIs are not prescribed by psychiatrists. I think mm -hmm. we might have mentioned this before. Oh, maybe we didn't mention this before, but most SSRIs are not prescribed by psychiatrists. Most SSRIs are prescribed by primary care docs. Um, and that makes sense because number one of the access issue mm -hmm. and number two, a significant amount of people will feel better on the first SSRI that we give it a shot, right? So why not? right? Why not just start it and see what happens and then get on a wait list for a psychiatrist, right? Um, and then maybe you'll be fine with just the SSRI that your pediatrician is doing and you're titrating the dose that I think is the, the biggest, the biggest, I don't want to say mistake, but perhaps where I find the primary care doctor's discomfort kind of comes into focus is not with starting the medicine, I find that it's with increasing the dose. Mm -hmm. So I can't tell you how many people show up and they're like, I don't know, I, I'm on Zoloft and I don't feel any better. And I say, well, how much Zoloft are you on? And they say 25 milligrams. And I said, right. well, that kind of makes sense. You didn't fail Zoloft. We just didn't give you enough of Zoloft to help you feel better. So it's starting the medicine and it's increasing the medicine. Okay. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you another barrier and we should talk about it is the black box warning for these medications. Oh my gosh. Okay. We need to talk about the black box. We one. do. 100%. Okay. So um, for our listeners, what is the, what is the FDA black box warning? Hugely, hugely controversial, I might add. So 
on all SSRIs, it says there's a FDA black box warning, which says this medicine may increase the risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in um, uh, adolescents and young adults. Okay. The first thing I emphasize is this is suicidal thoughts and behaviors. There is no evidence and there has never been evidence of increased risk of completed suicide. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, where does this come from? So it comes from a couple of studies that I believe, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I believe they were done in early 2000s, but I, well, I guess obviously you're going to quote me on it because you're listening to me on a podcast, um, but someone else could look this up. I, I'm not exactly sure. I think it was done in the early 2000s. And what those studies found was that um, there was perhaps a one to 2% increase in these studies in suicidal, again, thoughts and behaviors in the control, sorry, in the, um, the uh, uh, what's the opposite of control group? Study group. The study group, yeah, I don't know why my brain just froze there. In the study group as compared to the control group, right? So these are children who were already depressed Okay, and so it's the children who were on or the teenagers who were on the SSRIs, there was about a one to 2% increase in, again, suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Um, none of the groups actually had a completed suicide. Neither of the groups had a completed suicide. Um, and uh, that obviously sent people into a tizzy and concern because there was this black box warning and what are we going to do? And so from an epidemiological perspective, meaning from a population perspective, the uh, rate of SSRI prescription went down. And what do you think happened from an epidemiological perspective to the rate of suicide or suicide up. attempts? Of course it went up because we weren't treating kids' depression, right? So when you have a study, you're looking at the eight weeks of the study, the 12 weeks of the study. You're not looking, you know, kind of following these kids for 24 weeks, half a year, a year, right? You don't know what's happening afterwards. That's number one. And number two, again, we're saying, yes, you know, it could be. That's, you know, that there was increased suicidal ideation or thoughts in those teenagers when they started SSRIs that did not increase their overall risk of completed suicide. If anything, again, from a population level, we have evidence to suggest that being on antidepressants decreases the population's level, you know, risk of suicide. The other thing is that there are other studies that don't show that, okay, that don't show that 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 increased risk of, again, suicidal thoughts and behaviors, and I'm going to keep using those words because I want to make sure we don't just say, oh, this increases your risk of suicide because it doesn't. Um, but there are studies that show that, you know, the suicidal thoughts and behaviors don't increase. The other thing to note, okay, is that even though there is a blanket black box warning on anything that is an antidepressant, by the way, which includes, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it includes like if you actually filled a medication for epilepsy, but it's also used as an antidepressant, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that there is a black box warning on those also, even though it makes no sense, right? right. Because there's no evidence that if you give, give a kid with a seizure disorder, this medicine, that they're all of a sudden they're going to have suicidal thoughts. There actually is no evidence that you give a kid with an anxiety disorder, that all of a sudden they're going to have these increased thoughts, right? Um, but this was the decision of the FDA to make a blanket back 
black box warning. I will say that people in the child and adolescent psychiatry world have advocated to have that removed mm -hmm. and have been unsuccessful for about 20 years at this point. Right. It, it is an additional barrier for people to get help. Um, but we need to talk about suicidality because that is an important discussion in any of these situations. You know, we should be screening, you know, clinicians should be screening for suicidality across the board at well visits and certain other select visits. Um, so it's really important to have that conversation. And while we're talking about this. evidence, right, there is no evidence that asking about suicidality mm -hmm. increases the risk, right? right? So people right. And I fear. must link to yet another podcast because I did a whole episode okay. on okay. suicide prevention. Yeah. So, yeah, you got to ask. Listen, if you don't ask, you're not going to hear what the what's going on. So, yeah, you have to ask those questions. And I could respect and understand and perhaps agree with that patients who... Um, you know, who do have underlying suicidal ideation that PCPs are not comfortable treating them, right? And they want them to go see a psychiatrist, right? I respect that. I understand that, you know, and that might be a case where you say, yeah, I need to refer you to a higher level of care. Um, there are, let's say in the Long Island area, um, you know, you can send to something like Northwell's mm -hmm. Urgent Care, in, which is located in Cone's Children's Hospital. Um, and that is a way to help people get, link, you know, kids linked to care. They actually have an adult side as well, but help people get linked to care faster in a, in a society, in a world that we live in where it's really, really hard to get linked to care. Um, what you don't want to do, right, is a kid tells you that they're having you know, intermittent, passive, like wishes of death, right? That's not a kid we want to send up to the emergency room um, because you're just, uh, you're filling up and, you know, you're filling up a, a resource that already is very stretched. And um, that's number one. And number two is it's, it, I mean, to some extent, it, it, I, I'm not going to minimize the fact that it's somewhat traumatizing to a kid, right? right? You know, you're going right. to have to go to a psychiatric emergency room. You're going to say, you can't wear your street clothes. You have to change into a hospital gown. Someone's going to be watching you, right? And so if we need to do it, if the kid's in danger, 100%, let's do that. Um, but we don't want to kind of give the message of you shouldn't have said anything, right? <laughs> You've been better off keeping your mouth shut. Right. I want to put in a plug for the um, there are access programs in, in New York. It's called Project Teach, where um, pediatricians and other you know clinicians that take care of kids and teens can get some training. Like they call it a mini fellowship. Um, and you can also call them up even if you don't go on that training program to get some uh, you know same day advice. And I think that's really helpful. And also put in a plug again for screens. Um, I really do like the ASQ. Um, ask suicide questionnaire and it's free online and it takes a few minutes for the team to fill it out. And I think that's really helpful to figure out what's going on in terms of are they having active thoughts of killing themselves or is it more like I said passive, which is really common. People do not realize how common these thoughts are. Right. And, and, and the flip of that is, is right. The thoughts are common. That doesn't mean that the teen is at risk of completing suicide, right? right. Is many, many people have thoughts. Very, very few people go on 
um, relatively, you know, to the amount that have thoughts to, you know, attempt suicide and of those very, you know, even less go on to complete suicide. So on the one hand, I'm not minimizing the danger and minimizing the importance of asking these questions and understanding people's levels of distress. On the other hand, um, I want to put that in context of kind of saying, oh my, you know, we don't have to be like, oh my gosh, you know, the chicken little, the sky is falling. It's, right. this is serious and we're going to take care of it and that's okay. Right. And clinicians should not be terrified of prescribing these medications again. Yeah. Because there is limited access and sometimes they're really needed. So we talked about this scenario where someone is just so severely anxious and or depressed that medication is needed right now. When would you know that therapy is not working for the more milder cases and need to start medication? Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule on time. Okay. Um, I think that's a collaborative decision between the therapist and the patient where the therapist might say, you know, things are not moving or the patient may be able to say, you know, things are not moving. You know, I've been doing this for, you know, eight weeks and, um, you know, I'm doing the instructions, you know, I'm following the work. Um, you know, I'm doing the homework that my therapist is asking me to, or my therapist keeps giving me homework, but I just feel too depressed or too anxious to be able to engage in it, right? And that was kind of going back to what you said is when the anxiety levels a certain severity or the depression is a certain severity, people may have difficulty following through and really engaging in therapy. Um, and that might be a time to say, okay, you know what, I think it's time to, uh, to see a psychiatrist and to start medicine. Right. I want to take a little and, diversion. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> And, you know, again, a lot of people come in and they say, well, you know, or they're, let's say they're coming in to do an evaluation with me, which sometimes because I work in a clinic setting, sometimes can be simultaneous to, to starting therapy, um, you know, to do that evaluation. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll say to me, uh, well, I just want to make it clear that medication is a last resort for us. And I say, well, can we reframe that? Mm -hmm. Right. And let's say that if your child needs medicine, then we're going to give your child what they need. And you're here to determine what is it that my child needs to get better. Right, right. We keep talking about the resistance. It's, it's an issue. I, I wish that psychiatric medications were not viewed differently than medications for so-called physical conditions. But I think are. it's multifactorial, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's something, you know, psychiatric conditions are something you can't see, you can't right. touch. I think it's not something you can pick up on a scan or a blood test. Um, I think a lot of um, psychiatric diagnoses are extension of normal, right? So anxiety is a normal emotion. Right. Sadness is a normal emotion. So then when it kind of gets to be too much, I think our first indication of, well, it's, the, it's their fault. They really should be working harder. They should be doing something different, right? Um, and so I think all of those things lead to this othering of psychiatry. I think we also have to acknowledge that we don't always live in a social media Instagram world that is friendly to um, mainstream psychiatric treatment, right? And you have all these people saying, oh, this was terrible. You know, I tried this, right. I tried that, and it was awful. And then I did aromatherapy and it was great. And, and I try to push people and say, 
okay. And let's say someone would go on Instagram and they would say, oh, my child had this reaction to antibiotics and it was so terrible. And now I tried this. Okay. A certain amount of people will be influenced by that, but I don't think as many people are influenced by that as when it comes to psychiatry. Absolutely. I'm thinking of, of one person who actually inspired me to do the talk with Dr. Tal Weinberger about medication because she actually went on Instagram and said, you know, I went back on medication and it changed my life. I am back to myself. And it really inspired me to do that episode. So there are yeah. sometimes the opposite on Instagram, but I mean, don't, don't get your medical advice from <laughs> social media. Please, right. Please don't, please don't, please don't get your medical advice from social media. Please go to doctors, right? We went to school for a lot, a lot of years. We see a lot, a lot of patients. And uh, contrary to popular belief, I think sometimes we, we want to help people. I want people to feel better. You know, I'll come home to the supper table and I'll say to my husband, today was a good day. I saw two people and they're doing better. And I just yeah. feel so happy, right? Um, and if they're not doing better, then we have to think about it. We have to think creatively. We have to think collaboratively and say, okay, let's go back to the drawing table. What do we think is working? What do we think is not working? How can we help you? meet your goals. Right. So I want to go into starting medication and figuring out what works and what doesn't, but I just want to do a diversion for just a minute. We mentioned earlier, we said, well, what if we think it's anxiety, but think it's ADHD, but really it's anxiety. What about the other way around? You, you've missed ADHD. When I did that little mini fellowship with, with Project Teach, they actually said that with milder anxiety coexisting with ADHD, you treat the ADHD first. Why you do a psychiatric evaluation, okay? Um, and, or this is a really good example of a situation where, yes, it makes sense that you need to see a psychiatrist and you want somebody, you know, with a lot of experience. And actually a lot of times I'll have people, um, you know, call me, let's say in my private practice and say, oh, I don't want a full evaluation for my child. I just need to start medicine for anxiety. And, and I'll say, look, maybe you could find a different psychiatrist who does that. I don't do that. Anytime I'm going to see a, a patient, right, as a, for initial, I'm going to do a full psychiatric evaluation. And the reason is, is what you're suggesting, right, is to say is that I don't do an evaluation for anxiety. I don't do an evaluation for ADHD. I don't do an evaluation for depression. I do a comprehensive psychiatric evaluation and I'm going to ask about everything. And we're going to try to go backwards and look for things that we're missing. Okay, so let's say mm -hmm. the example that you're giving, let's say, of this kid who's been in therapy for, you know, a while, and it's not going anywhere. So what, let's say, an evaluation with me would look like would be, okay, let's think about this. Is there another diagnosis that we're missing? Um, or is it just a case where this child actually needs um, just medicine for anxiety? And that's a question that we have to answer. And the way we answer it is by doing an evaluation. So you screen for ADHD routinely? Again, it's part of a psychiatric evaluation, mm -hmm. right? So number one, when you come to see me as part of a psychiatric evaluation, number one, you're going to have to fill out screening forms, okay? Most psychiatric evaluations involve screening forms, okay? Um, and those screening forms are for depression and for anxiety and for ADHD, okay? So before you even walk into my office, I'm going to do a quick look and say, oh, hmm, that's interesting. You know, you, you're circling two, you know, you're coming in for problem X, 
But on the scale for y, you're circling twos and threes. And so I'm going to say, huh, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. OK, that's number one. Number two is regardless of what the scales show, I'm still going to ask you questions about attention and organization um, and hyperactivity and restlessness. Um, as part of the psychiatric evaluation. The same way everybody comes into my office, I'll do a brief screen for psychosis, right? I mean, it's a very brief screen. It's, do you ever feel like your mind is playing tricks on you? And then people, are, well, what do you mean? And I'll explain, right? It's about 10 seconds of the evaluation, but it's comprehensive, right? Because we are looking for everything. It's almost like a primary care visit for your brain, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. But to go back to what you said earlier is because there is a shortage of child psychiatrists um, and you are a primary care clinician, maybe the one doing the medication, you know, if they do, quote unquote, get it wrong and it doesn't work, you stop the medication. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. That I, yeah, that's that's like a big thing that right. people feel like there's this huge commitment they're making to starting medicine. And I say, I mean, you're not getting married to the medicine. Right. Right. Try it. You like it <laughs> or you won't. You okay. don't like it, no problem. The reason that I'm pointing out about ADHD is because, you know, as a pediatrician, I do see it all the time, particularly in girls who I think are underdiagnosed with ADHD. That correct. That, you know, they've been going along and no one's been bothering them and they haven't been able to pay attention. And then they go into adolescence and they are at even higher risk of becoming anxious and depressed. And nobody has addressed the initial ADHD. Correct. And so in those cases, you know, it's not something that I necessarily do. Um, I personally don't like to do medication because um, I tend to be more of a purist. I would love to do what you do and have more time and try to figure it all out. But um, those are the situations I've had to deal with. Um, and the resistance to medication is also for ADHD medication. So that's why you can come to this scenario. And I just want to point out that, you know, think about ADHD and think about the risks of not treating it. Correct. And a lot of times, you know, when I get a child who's a junior high school or high school, and it turns out they've had untreated ADHD for years, um, we're in a situation where now we have to correct more problems. So, you know, if this child, I mean, listen, I don't have a crystal ball and hindsight is always 2020, but one could imagine, right, that if this child had been on ADHD medicine, let's say in third or fourth grade, and life would have been smoother and academics would have been smoother, and they wouldn't have always been told that you're doing the wrong thing and stop being annoying, or they wouldn't have missed on, on social cues and all that stuff, right, we wouldn't get to eighth grade where now I'm anxious or now I'm depressed and now I feel really bad about myself. And so a lot of times when I get those later ADHD diagnoses, I'll tell parents is we are going to start medicine for ADHD and you need to start therapy to work on XYZ. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I would be treating a fourth grader with ADHD, a lot of times therapy is not necessary, right? It's just, okay, let's just fix the ADHD problem and let's get him back on track. Right. Right. It's kind of like you mentioned earlier, the ship has sailed, you know, like things change over yeah. time and it can become yeah. more complicated. Yeah. So let's talk about those SSRIs, um, because mm -hmm. those are the class of medications that you would use for anxiety, mm -hmm. depression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you start? Which do you pick? How do you so, know? okay. So, I mean, number one, you can go based on FDA approvals. Um, which probably in terms of a coverage perspective, you know, for the provider, um, 
is the safest way to go. When I say safest, just to clarify, it doesn't actually mean um, that it's safer, um, you know, from a risk perspective, but I mean more of a malpractice risk perspective, right? Um, 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 so, you know, so that's, that's one, okay? Um, now, when it comes to um, ones that actually have approval, the only one that has approval in children, and when I say children, I mean eight and up, is Prozac. Okay, doesn't always mean that I'm going to do Prozac. Okay, but the only one that has approval for depression um, is is Prozac, and that's for eight and up. Lexapro ha also has FDA approval, but that FDA approval is only twelve and up. Mm -hmm. For anxiety, there are more. Okay, so Zoloft also has approval for anxiety for OCD, which obviously we're definitely not going to talk about today. There are more as well for approval in this age group. It's important for people to understand what FDA approval means. What it means is is the company that, uh, or actually the company that initially produced the brand version of that medicine um, made the decision to do the study and pursue and pay the money to pursue FDA approval. That's why when I said it's kind of safer, I'm, I'm uh, catching myself and saying it doesn't actually like there's no evidence to say that, right. you know, Prozac in an eight year old is safer than Lexapro in an eight year old. It's just that Prozac did all the steps that you had to do to get that FDA approval. And Lexapro, for whatever reason, decided that from probably from monetary perspective that it wasn't worth it for them. Okay. Um, the main. But that does also mean that you, you may have more experience, you know, larger experience data to draw from. Correct. Yeah, 100%. So, again, I think when all things being equal, you're going to go based on the FDA approvals, right? When there's a reason not to, and again, I think that's perhaps beyond the scope of this, of this talk, right? It's okay not to. Right. I wouldn't say it's necessarily beyond the scope of this talk because, you know, in terms of what to expect, you mentioned earlier that some of these medications can take as long as six weeks to take effect. Some of these medications are, work more quickly than others. We're not going to necessarily go into details. This is well, not no. so SSRIs. <laughs> okay. 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 So SSRIs in general across the board, we kind of say expect six weeks. Okay. Um, we don't really make a distinction when it comes to SSRIs. Individual practitioners may say, you know, I really feel like if we start Lexapro, mm -hmm. it goes faster. And part of the reason is, is um, because certain um, starting, so, and this is probably something we should talk about, um, is certain SSRI medications, the starting dose is already considered to be a treatment dose. Okay. Um, certain SSRI medications the start, and I'm thinking about Zoloft in particular, where the starting dose is not a treatment dose. It's just a dose to get you used to the medicine, but you really have to increase the dose if you want to get the benefits of the medicine. And that's a big thing that I tell people is, look, if you're on a medicine anyway, then you definitely should be increasing the dose to get the benefit because otherwise all you're doing is exposing yourself to side effects, but you're right. not exposing yourself to the potential of getting better from these medicines. Okay. Now, in terms of medications that, um, you know, are shorter for benefit, I mean, really we're talking about number one, benzodiazepines. Okay. So that those are things like clonopin 
or Ativan, right, which we are very, very careful and cautious when we prescribe in this age group, because as I'm sure our listeners know, those are medications that are potentially addictive, can cause tolerance, can cause dependence. However, I use them. And you know what the truth of the matter is? Primary care doctors use them. And especially when you're using them, let's say you have a kid who's coming in and they are so anxious, they can't sleep, they can't function, they can't go to school, they're not eating, right? Because their anxiety is so all-consuming. A lot of times we'll say is, look, we got to get you better fast, right? Because you are like living a tortured existence right now. So let's start a small, small dose Mm. of benzodiazepine along with the SSRI at the same time so that, um, you know, while we're waiting for the SSRI to kick in, you're already getting the benefit of the benzodiazepine. Um, And then what I say is, it's a bridge, exactly. And what I say is, (laughs) and what I say is, right behind me, that's good. Nice nice metaphor right there. And what I tell people is, is I said, the best case scenario is you start forgetting to take the benzodiazepine because you're just feeling better. Um, and the answer is they do, you know, they just start feeling better and then they forget about the benzodiazepine. And I say, and when that happens, don't forget the SSRI because that's the one that is not the bridge. That's the one that's the driving engine. We don't want you to just stop that. Um, so that's, that's what I tell people. And it buys you time while you're waiting for the other medication to kick in. Correct. 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 So how do you balance, cause you mentioned side effects. How do you balance the side effects with the efficacy? Okay, number one, you know, again, we're kind of limiting ourselves to talking about SSRIs, which makes sense, right? Because mm-hmm. most people with anxiety and depression are not going to progress beyond the SSRI realm. Um, are generally very well tolerated medications, okay, with few side effects. Um, I'll tell people, look, the number one side effect that you're going to get from starting this medicine is GI, okay? So that's things like you're cramping and you're nauseous and those type of stuff. Um, And I tell people, number one, take it with food because it will help. And number two, this is a side effect that just goes away in the vast majority of cases. So if you can hang in there, you know, then it will go away. Some people also find when they're starting an SSRI that there is initial increase in anxiety, okay, um, kind of in that first few weeks where it's like, yes, I'm supposed to be helping your anxiety, but I'm making it worse, which is also another reason why in very, very anxious people, I'll, I'll do a benzo and an SSRI at the same time to kind of blunt that initial rise in anxiety. Um, and so, um, you know, I'll warn people, and again, I'll kind of tell them, look, it's going to get better, right? It's the reassurance of like, this is going to go away. Um, and then there are other things, right? Like some people find that SSRIs at the beginning, give them insomnia, right? Um, and I'll say, okay, you know what? I, and I'll tell people, I say, look, some people will find that starting this medicine will actually worsen their sleep initially, which is why I recommend that you take it in the morning to mm-hmm. start off. If you find that you're actually having the opposite effect that's making you feel sleepy or tired or foggy throughout the day, don't even call me. Just switch it to taking it supper time. Okay. I mean, you could call me, you could always call me, Um, but like, you don't have to just, I'm telling you what to do. So I think setting expectations, giving people a roadmap of what to expect and, you know, with the appropriate amount of reassurance really helps people get past uh, the initial side effects that they might experience. But you also have the situation where the side effects are worse than the positive effect, right? 
in some cases. And that's why anytime mm -hmm. I start a medicine, you're coming back for a follow-up visit right. in four weeks and then we'll reevaluate, right? If you're having terrible side effects a month later, then maybe we need to maybe we need to think about maybe it's not the right medicine. Sometimes, you know, people call me a few weeks in and they'll say, you know, I, I'm really feeling miserable. What sometimes what I'll do is they say cut the pill in half. Like let's start with a with a smaller dose. See if we can allow your body to get used to the medicine on a smaller dose and then perhaps slowly increase from there. Or sometimes we'll just say, look, you know, you gave it the old college try and let's go back to the drawing board and find something else. Right. And some people really are more sensitive in starting low and going slow. Yeah. Doesn't I mean, really listen, the whole the whole mantra in child psychiatry is start low and go slow. Um, but then as one of my supervisors in uh, fellowship said, but go. Right. right? But go. <laughs> like, don't 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 just get stuck at, you know, Lexapro two and a half milligrams, cut the pill in half and then never increase because you're just not going to get a benefit. Right, right, right. I just want it for a minute or two to talk about one particular um, uh, side effect that you could have, which would be um, activation into, say, more manic symptoms. We didn't mention that, but I think it's important. Okay, so that's a that's a good point to bring up. Okay, and it's actually I couch it. I sometimes I'll use the word activation, or sometimes I'll use the word increased anxiety, right? Um, and the reason that I don't, it's not part of my usual spiel is because it's not a particularly common side effect. It is something that can happen. Um, and I always tell people, look, if things are changing, right? If you have any concerns, you're always gonna call me back. Um, but it's, it's not overly common. But what you're referring to is, okay, is some people will have the side effect from SSRIs that instead of just this medicine maybe causing an increase in anxiety, right, or irritability initially, um, this medication is actually, you know, too activating. And so when we're talking about mania, okay, what we're talking about is not sleeping, maybe feeling very irritable, or maybe feeling euphoric, too happy, feeling on top of the world, having a grandiose sense, you know, like kind of I'm Superman, talking really fast, doing too much, kind of this like internal sense of restlessness to just turn into the energizer bunny, just go, 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 go. That could happen. That's something that, you know, providers obviously monitor for. Um, and obviously, if that happens, we want to recognize that because we want to stop it, right? Because we don't want to um, provoke a full-blown manic episode. Right. Another reason for starting low and going slow. Right. Exactly. It's another reason for starting low and going slow. Right. Do you ever use, I know there's new genetic tests to pick medication. I've seen people use them. Do you use okay. them? Let's explain what those genetic tests are and what they are not. Okay. So what the genetic tests are is that they are looking at the patient's metabolism of medication. So there's something called your CYP P450 system, okay? CYP450 system, okay? That is how your liver metabolizes medications, okay? And there are different family, you know, there are different kind of uh, enzymes in this family, okay, that break down medication, okay? Um, and some people are regular metabolizers of medication. Um, you know, again, it's not, it's not everything. It's like, you know, your 
I don't know, 2D6 is Prozac, I think. Um, don't quote me. Again, I'm saying this on a podcast, but I'm saying don't quote me. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> there are different, you know, there are different ones. I look it up, right? Um, so, you know, some people are really, really fast, right? Like that one is really, really active. So it's going to move Prozac quickly through your system. Or some people have normal or some people have really slow, okay? Um, and so... What it tells you again is how quickly or not quickly your body is metabolizing this medicine. What there is no genetic testing for yet, okay, is efficacy, right? Is the receptors um, that will, you know, how, let's say, right? Because medications work by hooking onto neuroreceptors. And, and how your body is going to perceive or respond to the medications in that way. So again, what the genetic testing is really about is the clearance of this medication from your body. It is not about the activity of that medication mm -hmm. in your brain, okay? So when would I use genetic testing? The answer is I don't do it off the bat. It's not a good use of resources, mm -hmm. okay? And oftentimes it's not covered. So why would I tell someone to pay several hundred dollars for something that doesn't make sense, you know, really doesn't make sense to do? The where those genetic testings are most useful is if I have someone who's gone on two antidepressants or three antidepressants, and every time it's so strange, they have these really weird side effects or really severe side effects. They seem really, really sensitive to these medications, right? At that point, I will say, um, you know what, maybe, and I'll discuss it, like we'll have kind of an open discussion with them of like, we could just keep trying, but perhaps there is a difference in the way that you are metabolizing these medications, which is causing, right? Like if you're a really, really slow metabolizer of certain medications and they're just hanging around your system too long, and then you're having like kind of two high levels hanging out there, um, then perhaps we're going to pick a medicine that, you know, go is metabolized by a family that you're, that, you know, that you, you do better at, so mm -hmm. to speak. Okay. Um, so that's where, that's where genetic testing is at right now. Um, and again, you know, if you look at the most recent APA guidelines, which is the American Psychiatric Association, they will kind of say, which is, you know, genetic testing is not yet part of routine care for the reasons that I'm explaining to you. Right. It, should it not still, remains an, it still remains an art, right? More than not just a science. To prescribe are medication. You, to prescribe, meaning you're talking about genetic medication. No, no, no. I'm just saying that that it, there's no quick test to figure out quickly what yeah, medication yeah. will work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, we could say is, you know, most people, you pick an SSRI out of a bag, right? So, you know, doesn't really matter which one I chose, you're going to get better, right? So for the most people. And again, the rule with SSRIs is typically we'll try two, Okay, just because one didn't work. So then we'll say, okay, well, let's try a second one before we start thinking about going to different classes of medication. And as we had mentioned, different, you know, as you kind of go up the scale, you're, you're opening the possibility of more side effects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also, especially in children, less evidence of use. Right. Right. And you mentioned before about FDA, you know, um, approval for certain medications. I think we should mention that there is a lot of so-called off-label use of psychiatric medication in kids and teens because there are so few choices that are on-label. Correct. 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 You know, and I'll always, 
I'll do my best, you know, when I'm doing something off-label, right, is to let people know that this is an off-label use, but we, we do it all the time. It's not only in psychiatry, I think, that we mm -hmm. do it. I think we use off-label use of medication all the time, and I think we just need to be honest with our patients. You know, what is that? Why am I doing this, and what does that actually mean? Right. I think it is more common in psychiatry. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it, it's probably more common in psychiatry, and it's probably more common in psychiatry um, in children. Right. right. That's what um, I mean. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying, is is that it's not limited to psychiatry. Right. the The bottom line is to, with as great safety as we can, to help our patients feel better. Yes. So now they're feeling better. How long do they have to stay on the medication? Okay. So let's define better. Okay. So better means what I'm talking about: remission of symptoms. Okay. Um, I say uh, the minimum is six months. I prefer a year. If there's a reason that we don't want to do a year. Um, because maybe the person is having side effects, maybe there's another reason, maybe they're going away and the parents don't trust and take their medicine. Okay, fine, there are a lot of reasons why perhaps, um, but all things being equal, I prefer a year, but we're, we, we think about things in six to 12 months. Um, and then we could slowly, emphasis on slowly, start tapering the medicine under close supervision to make sure that we're not kind of precipitating the same problem that we had in the first place. That's for first episodes. When you're on a second episode of depression or a third episode, then we kind of have to have a conversation of saying, I don't know, is it so bad for you to kind of just stay on this medicine, right? Um, if we're looking at risks and benefits, perhaps we should stick on this for longer. Right. I mean, some people just need it. Right. I mean, some people need blood pressure medications. Right. Some people need diabetes medications. Some people need antidepressant medications, and that's okay. Right. That's what I said earlier. I mean, I wish we would just normalize this. And that's what that Instagram person, who is Barry Mitzman, by the way, she's been a really amazing um, yeah, she's great. advocate for mental health. Yeah. And yeah. I interviewed her. I got to link that one now. <laughs> she's but great. She's she, great. she really, really is. And, and that was not her first episode. And she had wanted to be off the medication, and it didn't work for her. Right. And she felt so much better going back on the medication. I deal with this all the time with parents of children in my practice. When they have a baby, they want to go off, be off the medication or during pregnancy. That is beyond the scope and more in the realm of Dr. Tal Weinberger, um, who I interviewed once and hope to get back to on greater detail on this topic. So I think that we really covered as much as I think we should for this topic. And I have to Thank you for being patient and meeting with me not once, but twice to accomplish this task. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was really fun to be here. Excellent. Thank you so much and have a good job. You too. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, Check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.